And uh, there's a handout in the back if you haven't gotten it. We're on session six today of the history of the church from 50 to 500 A.D. Um, we're talking about Sabellianism. We're going to talk about something else before that, too. So it's kind of a two-parter today. I mean, it's, we're going to do both parts today. But I wanted to uh, touch on something else because we are trying to go through church history, not just the heresies, but to deal with everything that we, I mean, as much as we can. Uh, not everything, obviously. But um, anyway, we're going to talk about the uh, second and third century apologists, those who defended the faith against outside critiques. And then we're going to talk about Sabellianism, which is an, another heresy. You know, we've been using the heresies, we've been titling them by the names of the main heretic. Last week was Montanism, because Montanus was the guy. Before that was Marcionism. Marcion was the main guy. We did Gnosticism wasn't that way, because there wasn't a guy named Gnostis or whatever that that came from. It's, it's more of a term. And we'll see that this, this has a, Sabellianism is also known conceptually by the term modalism. Name, Sabellius, concept, modalism. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But let's go ahead and commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together around your word and to, the Lord, to think about how and reflect on how you have sovereignly governed your church throughout history. We thank you that Jesus has been building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, Lord, even when um, uh, evil comes in like a flood, uh, Lord, you raise up your standard. And what Satan means for evil, you mean for good. Help us to uh, draw what we need to from uh, this era of history uh, that we might be encouraged in our own walks with Christ, be more obedient, faithful followers of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, so um, the, the, today we're looking at pressures from without and from within. So that's why we're going to talk about the, um, because we're, I'm thinking about the church from like 170 or 150 to about 220. It's a similar time. Last time we were looking at Montanism, uh, was 150 to 170. So you've got things happening in different places in the Christian world. You know, the Christian world at this point uh, is mostly the Mediterranean world. The gospel has moved out from Jerusalem. The centers of Christianity are other places. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting to think about is, uh, you know, we talked about the Judaizing heresy several weeks back how that was something that was going on in uh, the New Testament. You can see Paul writing against it in Galatians and Romans and others talking about it in other places. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that God does in his, I think, in his sovereign, providential uh, governance of the way the church would be formed is he allows Jerusalem be, to be destroyed in 70 A.D. That was part of his judgment on Jerusalem for rejecting Christ. Uh, the, the destruction is massive. From then on, uh, the, the Jewish people, as Jerusalem as a center, is dramatically weakened. And so it, it, the Judaizing influence is kind of diminished too. It's kind of like he's discrediting the whole Jewish way of thinking, even though we realize that we, Christianity is the fulfillment of true, true Judaism, true Old Testament understanding of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, right? And interestingly enough, another thing that happens in 130 A.D. or 132, something like that, is there's a second Jewish revolt. There's a Jewish revolt in 66 A.D. that leads to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., and it's never been rebuilt. Well, there's another Jewish revolt in about 130 that results in a final, just cataclysmic destruction of every kind of remaining Jewish remnant in and around Jerusalem so that Jerusalem ceases to be the center for the Jews at the, this time. And there's still some people there, but just so much. In fact, the Romans colonized the area. I mean, they, they were already in, over it. What I mean is they, send, they start moving people in intentionally 
to, to diminish whatever Jewish influence is still left after they have just decimated the population in 130, okay? So what that does, though, in the province of God is it just kind of underscored again that the center of the church is not Jerusalem. You know, like in, in Acts, they have the Jerusalem Council, which happened around 48 AD. It's in Acts 15. It's when Paul's gone out on his first missionary journey. Gentiles are being saved. The question is, do Gentiles have to become Jews to be Christians? And so the, the council of Jerusalem is called, and you have Peter and Paul and James speaking in Acts 15. But where did they go for an appeal about what, what's our teaching to be? They went to Jerusalem. But that changes in 70 A.D., and it's just written off forever in 130 A.D. Jerusalem's no longer the center. And what happens then is other places become the center. Uh, you have Antioch, where they were, um, where Paul was sent out from in Syria, becomes a key center uh, of, of uh, Christian uh, thought. You have Alexandria in Egypt develop into a, a, an important center of Christian thought later, Carthage which is farther over to the um, west in northern Africa, becomes a center. Rome becomes a center. Uh, all over Asia Minor, and really Asia Minor becomes the main area that the, all the councils are going to be up in t- what's now Turkey. That's where the church is really strong. And so just want to point that out as we, as we go through this, that it's sort of the geography there's some really interesting things happening geographically, too, as we're trying to understand what God is doing. So, that, And you'll see that as we come here in just a moment. So point number one, the second and third century apologists. So we get to like 150, 170, all the way through about 220, and what's happening in the Roman Empire is the Roman Empire is becomingly, becoming increasingly unstable. Though it's going to take till about 400 before it's finally sacked, there's just... Because, remember, Rome was a republic, it devolved into an empire under Caesar Augustus, was the first Roman emperor, where now it's, it's new tyranny, it's rule of one man. And then you've got uh, basically the emperors having a, 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 a less uh, secure hold and it kind of ebbs and flows for the next 350 years until Rome's finally destroyed. Well, what happens is, as the Romans have more, they, they had such a great civilization, so much pride in Roman technology, Roman military might, Roman engineering, Roman culture. They took the Greek culture. They, you know, and so the Romans see themselves as they're it. And so as they start having more and more trouble, they look for scapegoats. And Christians become a very easy scapegoat again and again and again. And so you have periods of persecution, sporadic periods of persecution, times very intense, usually will last for, you know, 10 or 15 years or, or less, but, but, you know, where they're just rounding up Christians and killing them. Um, and it's a lot of times in certain, they're in certain areas, and sometimes it's more widespread. Well, given that Christians are being attacked and persecuted, and Roman society is dealing with this, you know, we're, we're, we're diminishing. Uh, more and more Roman thinkers write against Christianity. And one of the uh, Roman philosophers that really is probably the first to really take this on in a big way is a guy named Celsus, C-E-L-S-U-S. That's that first blank number one, attacks on the church, Roman philosopher Celsus. And he's writing around 170 AD, and he wrote a book or a treatise called On the True Logos, or On the True Word. L-O-G-O-S is Logos, which translates word, right? Jesus is the Logos in John 1. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Well, he writes a treatise on the true word in which he basically just attacks the person and work of Christ. He uh, demeans Jesus in every way possible. He slanders him. He, he, he demeans, you know, he, his mother was, it can't be God because his mother was a peasant. 
he, he claims it certainly wasn't uh, begotten by God. He was instead begotten by a Roman soldier who, you know, um, was a low guy himself. And so he's all this kind of nonsense. And he attacks Christianity as just the enemy of Rome. Well, so you have persecution. You now have people writing against it philosophically. And what happens is the Lord raises up some apologists, three effective apologists that kind of bridge this gap. You see the first is from 165 AD, a guy named Justin Martyr. His last name, we call him Martyr because he was martyred. He died in 165 AD, a martyr's death with his uh, fellow students. Justin Martyr actually is born in Nablus, which is uh, actually very close, not far from Jerusalem. He's one of those families, pagan families, that have been put into the area to recolonize. He has no affinity, no understanding of anything Jewish. He's just living in the, in the Holy Land without thinking it's the Holy Land, as it were, okay? And so Justin grows up. He is interested in philosophy. He's unfulfilled. He, he, he kind of makes his way through various forms of philosophy, finally settles on Platonism. He thinks that makes sense. And then he is walking on the beach somewhere there uh, on the Mediterranean coast in the area of Palestine, and he encounters a Christian who witnesses to him, and he becomes a believer. So he's witnessed to on the beach, becomes a believer, and he already had invested a lot of thought into philosophy and, you know, into Roman culture. And so he, now that he's born again, he wants to make a case for how Christianity is not what it's being characterized, because it's certainly being slandered by people like Celsus. And we've even talked about that even, you know, I've talked about it on Sunday mornings, how, you know, Nero and, and, and Tacitus, other Roman uh, officials, characterize Christianity. You know, Christians are the enemy of humanity, stuff like this. So these, these uh, three, Mark, I mean, these three uh, apologists basically take it on themselves to write to the Roman world, making an, a, a defense, an apology is basically a defense, not, an, not the way we use the word apology, I'm sorry. No, but it's a defense of the Christian faith. It's literally, apo means from, lagia is the word logos, a word from, you know, a position to defend itself. And so these three apologies. So Justin Martyr, he, he shows that Christianity is not illogical and unreasonable, but it's a very reasonable faith. He even draws on how, it's interesting he does this, he takes some of the stuff he had studied in philosophy and points out the good stuff, basically, and says these guys were onto the seeds of truth. Basically, he's making an argument for natural revelation that wherever you find truth in the world, it's God's truth, and people just stumbled onto it, and this is good stuff, and this is consistent. Natural revelation, the God who reveals himself in nature, reveals himself consistent with what we find in Scripture, though you have to have Scripture to be saved. So he's just appealing to uh, just the to people to to give it a hearing. Don't just accept the slanderous mischaracterization of Christianity, mischaracterization of Christianity. Um, he basically he he writes two main works. Uh, they're the first apology and the second apology. The first apology he dedicates to the emperor. So he since writes it to the emperor and says, "This is who we are." And he says things like, Christians are actually your most loyal citizens. In fact, Tertullian draws on this too. They say, listen, Christians won't worship the emperor. We'll do better. We will pray for the emperor to our God, the only true God, to bless the emperor. You see, so there is this, because of the pressures from without, there's the need for the church to, to answer and to gain a hearing. They're trying to, to um, help people it, not accept just the, the, the mischaracterization, we don't have anything to listen, they're not going to listen to us at all. So they, it, it's a, a, something God uses, these three guys. Um, Tertullian, the second blank is Tertullian of Carthage. I mentioned how we're seeing the, the, the movement of these different centers. Carthage is a, a key place in northern Africa uh, where 
God is working in the church, and it's, it becomes a center of Christian thought. And Tertullian, we, I mentioned him last time, he's one of the uh, really strong historians of the early church. He did kind of accept Montanism. I mentioned that last time. So he becomes a kind of a, what we would call a charismatic, and he's off in some ways, but he seems to be faithful to the gospel. He writes on even like the doctrine of the Trinity and stuff. Early, he's one of the early guys who talks about that with some clarity. But he is also a defender of the faith. And he writes to uh, the pagan world, basically saying Christianity is not what you think it is as well. Um, you know, he points out, for instance, in his Apologeticus, that Christians do not, as is slanderously reported, sacrifice children as a part of the Lord's Supper. This is the kind of thing that was just talked about. I mean, it's just ridiculous, wicked slander. Uh, you know, there's no incest because Christians call themselves brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean they have incestuous relationships. He's explaining all this kind of thing and writing about it. You see how, and you can see how the, the culture, such antipathy, Satan, you know, doing such a, um, uh, a good job of accusing the saints. That's what the word Satan means, accuse. He's the accuser of the brethren. And so here these men are used to answer that. And finally, origin. Third is origin of Alexandria. Origin of Alexandria. Um, and all these guys, if we read their stuff, there's areas where you'll see, hey, there's, he's off in this area a little bit. And, and only the Lord knows their true state. But I think we have to be careful about being too judgmental on something somebody's working through because uh, a lot of the doctrines haven't been fully fleshed out. And once the truth becomes clear and someone then rejects it, is bit, is more, that's more uh, an evidence of an unbelieving heart than when things are still kind of being fleshed out, figured out. So just keep that in mind. Origin of Alexandria, he's probably the most, even the most, he's even more of a philosopher than Justin Martyr and Tertullian. Uh, he wrote extensively against Gnosticism, Paul. Well, um, no, I, that's a good question. I, there, you know, you can read stuff on, there, there's some histories of the early church fathers. I personally think you got to be really careful reading it. It, it can be confusing. Um, and, and like I said, it, you've got to really stay in the Scriptures as you're doing it because these guys are writing at things about things that, and like I said, there are elements where they're, as we're going to look at beginning here in a moment with Sabellianism, the Trinity, the Trinity and, and how to understand it, there's all kinds of heresies popping up, and they're dealing with stuff, and at times they'll overstate one side in response to something. And then if you really look at it, you're like, well, you, you actually are sounding a little bit like this, this other heresy. So I think you have to just be really careful. Walk softly with it. But I, I don't, anybody else have an idea of something you'd recommend for that? E-sword? Okay. Very good. Jay, so eSword, you can download it. And Jay recommends Justin Martyrs, particularly his work is really edifying and encouraging. So thank you. Thank you, brother. Um, so moving on from there, we're going to jump into Sabellianism um, because it's not just you have pressure from without, the Roman world persecution, uh, the mischaracterization of Christians. But then you also have Satan's attacking, and the attack comes from within. 
as we've been talking about, the history of the church is a history of heresy. So heretics are springing up. And remember what Paul said in Acts 20, uh, 28 to 32, where he says to the Ephesian elders, you know, guard the flock uh, among whom the Holy Spirit's made you overseers. You know, be on your guard because after my departure, savage wolves are going to come in, and from your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. He could see that even among those elders, there might be some false teachers who would become wolves in the midst of the sheep. And so, anyway, now we go to another heresy, and this, we're kind of following in chronological order after Montanism, and kind of close to an overlap of Montanism, is Sabellianism. Sabellianism. Uh, and basically, Sabellianism, Sabellius was the main teacher of this, but there are other guys who were teaching it too. Uh, but he's the one that most historians credit as the guy really first articulating it. There's a couple other names. And this is one of the, when you're reading uh, early church history, one of the most confusing parts of it is that many things have multiple names. So, you know, like Sabellianism is another name for modalism. And that's one. That's the next blank on the other next page. Modalism and something called Patri-Passionism, which I'll just tell you what, it, it's actually helpful. P-A-T-R-I-P-A-S-S-I-O-N-I-S-M. Patri passionism. It may be an A instead of passion, maybe with an A there. P A S S I A N I S M, because I, I can't remember what the rule of. Anyway, it's one of the two. Patri passionism. The idea is patri means father, passion, suffering. And so the idea is if you accept modalism, if you accept Sabellianism, what you believe is the father died on the cross. Okay, so let me tell you what modalism basically is. And that's the, the doctrine of modalism, Sabellianism. It denies the doctrine of the Trinity. So the doctrine B is the doctrine of Sabellianism, modalism. And in that first little point, one denies the doctrine of the Trinity. Modalism distorts and denies the doctrine of the Trinity. It, number one, there underneath that number one, uh, it oversimplifies the divine mystery. The error of modalism really, in a sense, is oversimplification. And I mentioned how this really is, it, that's one of the patterns of the heretics. They, they take one truth and they drive it and they ignore how Scripture interprets Scripture. And so they look at one thing, the oneness of God, and they and that's what the next point they well, I'm sorry, no, appeals to human reason is number two. Appeals to human reason, those next two blanks. God God is reasonable. That's part of what the the um the apologists were saying is the faith, our faith is eminently reasonable. But it's not reasonable to a fallen human mind. It's reasonable once you accept that you, you need to start from a different vantage point. It all makes perfect sense. It's true logic. Because to start with man at the center, as we all do naturally as sinners, is to, and, and to use reason is to always reason to the wrong conclusions. Even though there's, there's elements of human reason we can appreciate, and, and you see people making some progress as they work through things, but fundamentally you can't really arrive at ultimate truth through human reason. You have to first of all start with God's revelation. He speaks, we take it, and now if we sit under his word, it becomes eminently reasonable. Though sometimes the divine reason stretches the limits of our human ability to conceive and understand, like the doctrine of the Trinity. But it appeals to human reason. I think what happens is... uh, you know, and maybe this is partly due to uh, the pressure from without sometimes, you know, unbelievers, like, what, what in the world is the doctrine of the Trinity? I mean, how can God the Father be God? What's the, how's the Son, how does the Spirit relate to one another? Isn't the Bible saying God is one? 
I mean, Deuteronomy 6, 5, the Shema, one of the things Jewish children learned from the very earliest time was Deuteronomy 6, 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, uh, with all your strength. And so that, the Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and that's the oneness of God is hammered home in the Old Testament. God is one, God is one, God is one. Okay, so how can it be that Jesus, as we look at him in the New Testament, appears to be God? The Holy Spirit appears to be God. I mean, they, they have the prerogatives of God. They, they do things only God can do. Uh, they are honored as God. Jesus is worshipped, does not reject worship. When Thomas falls on his feet, says, my Lord and my God, he doesn't say, no, get up from the ground. No, he is God. He's eternal. I'm, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He was with God in the beginning. So how do you make sense of that? Well, that's what the, the modalist and, and Sibelian was trying to deal with. So number two, they, over, they overemphasize the oneness of God. And Sibelius rejects distinct persons in the Godhead. Distinct persons in the Godhead. He, he takes the one truth of the oneness of God, says, well, if God is one, then what happens is there's not distinct persons. Instead, he affirms different modes of one God, hence the term modalism. Mode, could, you could translate with condition. You, I mean, you could use that as another word, synonym. Manifestation. So what he's saying is, what we see in Scripture are not three persons in one God, but are three modes of one God. And a, an illustration that uh, is often used erroneously, probably in Sunday school classes, that to teach the doctrine of the Trinity is you can say God is one and he's three, and sometimes this is, this is an errant, this is an error I'm, I'm, I'm sharing right now. And so if you've ever done this, you, you can repent and stand up publicly and confess. Now, many of us have done stuff like this because you, you, you know, at different times you're trying to think through how this makes sense. God is like water. This is the error. Well, water can be found as a solid, a liquid, and a gas but not the, not the same way at the same time. I mean, really, the, the idea is at it, 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 a certain temperature, it's solid. At a certain temperature, it's liquid. At a certain temperature, it's gas, right? Well, that's how it is with God in the Bible, Sibelius says, that in the Old Testament, he manifested himself as the Father. It's kind of like, I told you, Montanism was sort of like this, but Montanists didn't really believe it to the level. They, they believed there were still three persons, in the Godhead, it's just that one takes the main focus. But Sibelius is say, no, there's not three persons in the Godhead. There's really three modes of one God. And so, in fact, a key word is the word prosopon, P-R-O-S-O-P-O-N. It's a, a Greek word which was used, it, it means literally what meets the eye, what you see, but it was used, and this is, I think, why they, the modalists used this word. Sibelius used this word to explain God. And it was a word that was used, prosopon was used of the masks that Greek actors would use in a play to move from one character to another. An actor would have a mask on, then he you know, goes backstage, gets another mask, and now he's a different character. Same actor different mask. That's the idea of modalism. And that's, what, that's how they defined it. One God, different mask. So he comes on the scene as the father. Then he comes on the scene, now he takes that mask off. He comes on the scene as the son. 
Then at Pentecost, he takes that mask off and comes on the scene as the Spirit. And you can see a kind of a basic surface human logic to that, right? And if you're overemphasizing oneness and you're not looking at, at all that Scripture says, okay, now that's a relief. Now I don't have to worry about that. It, it makes perfect sense to me, humanly speaking. But the problem is it doesn't make sense biblically speaking, right? Um, I think it was an attempt to make Christianity reasonable to himself and to others. Maybe it was part of his, like, he, you know, he might have been one of those seeker-sensitive pastors in the second century trying to help his church grow and trying to make the message palatable. Who knows? Again, like most all the other guys, we don't have anything as much direct from him as we do people writing against him. Um, so anyway, yeah. The eggishness of God. You guys hear what Mike was saying? That uh, he's heard a friend of yours was saying this? Michael Reeves. Oh, oh, in the book, like the Do- Delighting in the Trinity or something like that. Um, Michael Reeves was saying that uh, you hear the, the analogy also of the Trinity as, as like an egg, three in one, shell, yolk, and egg white. And he said that, you know, uh, that, how can you believe people? How can you expect people to buy into the eggishness of God? I mean, it's such a demeaning thing, right, to say that. And it's also that's not modalism; that's tritheism, actually, because each each is so separate that they're really not. Because the real doctrine of the Trinity is that there's a complete coherence of persons. There's not anything separate and distinct. That everywhere the Father is, the Son and the Spirit are. Everywhere the Spirit is, the Son and the Father are. Everywhere the Son is, the Spirit and the Father are. That you can't encounter one person without the other. You can separate an egg into yolk and white, right? That's separated eggs. You've seen the joke where two eggs separated and you just put them on the counter like that, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Separate two eggs, okay? Sally, I'm, I'm counting on you. <laughs> You're just letting me down, okay? Um, but, you know, separating it ser- seriously, like you really separate egg white from yolk, right? Well, there is no separate, there is no separability of God. Scrambled logic. <laughs> Amen. That's very good. Ted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ted. Um, you know, you think about how God has made the creation, and, he, and the Bible says he's revealed himself, his divine nature, and what has been made. So nothing can fully, in nature, can fully represent God. That's what we see. The Scripture is the picture that gives us the true picture of God. But I think, I think that's a valid point. In fact, I think that would be the kind of thing that is, is actually good apologetics as long as you follow it up with, but it do, it's only an approximation of who God is. He's much more wonderful this, and we find it out when we go to the Word. He's spoken in His Word, but that's a great point that we, I think we should use. Illumination. Yeah. So, yeah, I think what you'd want to do is um, 
Yeah, so you're making the point. The Spirit has to work in the heart. And so, but I do think it's, I think that's a valid line of reasoning to, to reason from nature. It doesn't, nobody's going to get saved by that alone, right? We have to remember that. But I, I, sometimes there's this, this uh, argument in apologetics that you can't, you just need to, it's all about, I mean, I, I basically am more presuppositional in apologetics. Some of those of you who know the terms, I'm more presuppositional than classical, but I think there is a balance. I don't think you just one or the other. I think it's the idea of, of, let me say a word about that. What presuppositional apologetics basically says is that you can't reason somebody into the faith that the Spirit of God has to act, and it's through the Word of God. And so that someone becomes a believer by submitting to the Word of God, and it's a fundamental, like, first commitment. And that if they don't come to that, you're not going to reason them into the faith. And that's true. But in classical apologetics, at times may have, some apologists have acted like you could almost reason people into the faith. But I think there's, I think there, you know, a, a more balanced, classical apologetics would say things like, um, you know, the various arguments for the, for the uh, existence of God, you know, moral argument, that the fact that everybody, you would say, hey, the fact that every culture in the world has a basic understanding of almost the Ten Commandments. If you go back and you look at, say, all the various cultures of the world, wherever they are, they all kind of see... I mean, there's perversions of it. They, they go whacked out, just like our culture's going right now, right? But if you go back, you'll find one man, one woman. I mean, sometimes there's more women because there's just the need of it. But, but basically, infidelity is, is frowned upon. Murder is, is evil. Stealing is evil. Lying is evil. You find it everywhere. How, where'd that come from? I mean, if we're all animals, why would that be consistent? It argues for that it's something more to man. And so that's, that's one of the classical arguments for God is that, you know, there are all kinds of them. There had to be a, a, a first mover. Where did everything come from? Look at the order, all of that. I think, about, I, think, I think classical apologetics is a good place to start, that you can start reasoning with people. And I think that's what you're saying with the egg and the ice and water is to just even begin to get a hearing with somebody. You, you reason with them from what they know. They, ex, you know, you have to start somewhere, and the place to start is with what we agree on. Well, we agree that the world is, you know, you can, they can see the same thing you can see in the world. I mean, they don't have the Spirit to help them interpret it, but they, they see good and evil. Even though they deny that evil exists, they, they, they see it. And you can talk to them about it, you know. Uh, and you can talk to them about the order that's in the universe, all the, the design. Um, actually, this is, this is something, while I'm on it, you go to the Creation Museum. How many of you have been to the Creation Museum? I, kinda, I love the Creation Museum, but I, I think they, they have taken a completely presuppositional approach. Okay? The way that they do everything in their, uh, in their, in their uh, museum is they put Scripture everywhere, and they basically don't appeal to you with any sense of, of the, uh, what is the, uh, the argument from uh, uh, the creative design of the universe. What's the phrase? Not creative design. Uh, but anyway, they, they start with, this is what God said. Now, like I said, I think that's the way you get people saved. But to me, if I was designing that museum, I would have started with some of the intentional design stuff for the skeptic that comes in. And, okay, let's just start. Let me just show you all of the creation, the, 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 use, the handiwork of God. How do you explain it? You know, it, there's just things about the universe and about uh, the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom that argue for a creator. And it's, it's much more a, a, a step of blind faith to be an atheist in this world than to be a Christian. Because you believe it just happened. That takes a lot of faith. A lot of 
faith in nothing, right? Just, just I believe it happened that way because I just can't accept God. Well, I think I would have started off that way and then gone to the, what they do. I think that's a better plan, but they didn't, uh, they didn't ask me on that. And, um, um, and, and, and like I said, I, they, they're right in that you're never going to reason someone into the faith. At some point, you have to say, but I think the way to do it is to say, look at nature, look at nature. Hey, I want to tell you, God's word matches up to this perfectly. We've been talking about what's happening in nature. Let me just tell you that the God who created the world has spoken in this book, and if you put them together, uh, Francis Schaeffer uses this illustration. I love it. He said, evangelism is like, he said, imagine you tear a book in half, okay? I'm not going to do it. I, I can't do that. I'm not even going to try. Tear a book in half, and it's completely torn in half. So you have, you have half the book. Imagine trying, if, if you were on a d- desert island, and you didn't have anything to read, and you had half a book. You could read, you know, down half the page, and you're missing the page. Read the half the page. You could probably pretty well follow a story, but you're missing out on so much, right? And so Schaefer says, everybody in the world has half a book, the same half, natural revelation. God has two books in which he's spoken, Psalm 19. He's spoken in nature in Romans 1, but especially Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they, they present knowledge. There's no place on the earth where their voice is not heard. Okay, so everybody has the same top half of the book. And so Schaefer basically argues, he's a, I think he's a wonderful Christian philosopher, died in 1980 or so. He says, you can start on the, half, the top half of the book with them, but he's actually a presuppositional guy too, Ultimately, he says, but what you've got to do is say, listen, you have to understand to make sense out of this half that you're looking at, you have to have another half, and every religion of the world is an attempt to supply the bottom half of the book. And this is the only book that fits. So use this. I think that's a great argument. But it, it does show that there's really, there is a place for some classical, but I think what you want to do is quickly move to the Scriptures because nobody's going to get saved, and you can just spend all your time talking about, you know, rational arguments until you get all spun up and around, and they're not, really, they're not getting anything either. So there needs to be a place where you quickly move to Scriptures. That's what, I think that's kind of a, that's really the essence of presuppositional apologetics. Okay, so with that said... Response to Sabellianism, number C, the response to Sabellianism, modalism. Um, It's just to read the Bible and let the Bible speak. Let all of Scripture speak. Though there might be an apparent ring and an appeal to the modalistic view because it simplifies things, it just doesn't, doesn't stand up to the teaching of Scripture. And there are examples. I mean, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission is Trinitarian. We're called to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The name of these three persons, the name singular of these three persons, God, the name, the name of God, so important. And so the idea is that you see one God with three personal um, uh, persons within that one God. And then just looking, as you read the New Testament and the Gospels, it's just impossible to be a modalist. When you read, for instance, in um, you know, the, the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, after being baptized, Jesus came immediately from the water, and the heavens were opened, and he saw... He, Jesus, saw the Spirit of God descending. Now, how can that happen in the modalistic mindset? I mean, you look in here, the mask, and then suddenly he jumps up, and now it's another mask coming down. As a dove and lighting on him, no, the, the Spirit, not, he doesn't just see him, he comes down and he remains on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Then the Father speaks out of heaven. This is my beloved Son. 
So Father, Son, and Spirit, all three present at the same moment. And this is repeated uh, in three of the Gospels. It fully described this event. You also have all th- those same three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, describe the, uh, the transfiguration, where there you see the Father speaking to the Son, of the Son again. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Um, and of course, like even more than that, I, I, you just, you know, it's true everywhere, but Luke, I was just noticing this reading Luke recently, the prayer life of Jesus, it is really striking to look at this. Look at Luke 4.42. I've got a list of verses there. I won't go, maybe not go through all of them, but we'll look at a few. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. This is 4.42. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he went to a secluded place. Why? He went to pray. Um, look at verse, chapter 5, verse 15. But the news about him was spreading even farther, 5.15. And large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. I love that. The crowds are coming. People need him. They need to be healed. They need to hear the truth. But what is Jesus doing? He's praying. He needs to pray. Well, if, you're just, if it's just mass, that's absurd. No, the God-man who's living as true man though he's fully God, living as true man, living in communion with the Father, he must pray. He needs to pray. And if he needs to pray, how much more do we? Uh, Chapter 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Whole night in prayer, and the next day he calls the disciples. So Jesus, even in his earthly ministry, great things happened through extended prayer time. Isn't that amazing? I mean, just think about that. Before he calls his disciples, he spends the whole night in prayer. Wouldn't that seem unnecessary just to you and just logically? Thinking, well, he's God's son. Why does he need to spend the whole night in prayer? Shouldn't he get a good night's rest? He needed to commune with the Father to that level, to then be faithful in the execution of identifying the disciples. That's amazing. It shows the humanity of Christ, the interplay of humanity and deity of Christ. Um, Chapter 9, verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? And this is where Peter's going to say, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It happened right at... Luke wants us to know... It happened right after Jesus was praying. Another big movement happened as a result or at the end of a prayer time. And it goes on and on. But a key part, again, to me, though, is, is the transfiguration. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, the Gethsemane, chapter 22, verse 41. And, of course, you have this in all three Gospels. The other Gospels make clear that he prayed Three different seasons of prayer. I mean, I mean, not seasons. Three different times of prayer. He prays to the Father, asking the Father to remove this cup from me. Chapter forty, chapter twenty-two, verse forty-one. And he withdrew from them by a stone's throw. He knelt down and began to pray, saying, "Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done." And we know from the other Gospels, he did that three different times. He comes back, checks on the disciples, and he does it three times he spends in prayer. And Luke tells us that it was such an intense time of prayer that an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, because apparently he was so weakened by it, he needed to be strengthened supernaturally, humanly speaking, to go through the cross. It says, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood. The modalist says that's all a, it's all an act. That really, there's why would the son have wanted to? He didn't really want to not die. And he wasn't really. There wasn't really a, 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 a you know. It's just he was just showing us somehow how we need to pray. And he was when he was talking to the father. There was really nobody up there. He's just telling us this is how I want you to do it. 
it was like basically one of the guys I, I read had said it was kind of like a parent who might do a puppet show and change your voice and you got little puppets you're doing for your kids, you know. And so that's what God was doing, according to the modalist in the scriptures. And so it's, it's absurd and ridiculous. Uh, in John 1, 1 to 3, verse 18, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Down at 118, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The communion of the Father and the Son to the modalist is a, a, just a sham. Chapter 14, John's gospel just really unpacks the Trinity for us in such a beautiful way. 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to send the Helper, the Spirit of Truth. Verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Look at verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Isn't it amazing that, that this Sabellianism could even get a hearing? I mean, I'm, I was amazed at the, the things that people believe, right? The Bible is so clear. Now, you, you do realize that what they do is they just stay away from these passages and they teach all the other stuff, and that's why you need to hear the whole counsel of God. That's why Paul, that's what Paul told them that this, right before he said that in Acts 28, Acts 20, 28, be on your guard. He reminded them that for a period of three years he had not ceased from teaching them and had delivered them the whole counsel of God. Therefore, he was innocent of the blood of all men gave them all that God has to say. Old Testament, at that time, all the Old Testament for him, but for us, all the Old Testament and New Testament, we need all of it. That's why it's so deadly when people try to dismiss parts of Scripture. And then Acts 17, this, this to me, uh, it's just so much is robbed in the, in the modalistic view Jesus spoke these things, chapter 17, verse 1, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may be glorified, may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Read on through the rest of that prayer. Jesus' love for his Father. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, and they may, that they may be one. The beauty of the Trinitarian relationship, what a glorious thing. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Spirit exalting the Son, the Son magnifying the Spirit, this interplay of love and mutual affection and honor that goes on in the, in the oneness of God in these three persons and to have it stolen away out of a desire to make it reasonable. Such a horrific thing. So again, the Scripture, it's got to be in the Scripture. So any, any questions or comments before we close in prayer?
Uh huh. You're asking, I missed a little bit of what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Is the Old Testament, is the emphasis on the Old Testament leading to some of these heretical views? Yeah, that's probably true on some. You know, like this one, it does seem like that's a really good observation that if you just look at the Old Testament, even though the the Trinity is in the Old, in the Old Testament too, but it's more subtle, right? And you see it come into full light in the New. But the New Testament canon is not fully... Um, well, I mean, it's a real di- discussion about canonicity that I want to have. I think I'm planning to do that in a couple of weeks. I forgot what. It was either next week or like... No, I'm going to Arianism next week. So after Arianism, we'll go to canonicity. Because I'm trying to, I'm trying to kind of follow a logic, but I would just simply say that I think that's true. I think that in different places, you have an emphasis on more New Testament than others. But a lot of places you probably do have because they, you know, if if there was more of a um, a, a Jewish influence, you'd even have more of that uh, on the Old Testament. Laura, I'm sorry, Jay. Uh, yeah, you know, I think isn't um, uh, what the, uh, the 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 black guy uh, T.D. Jakes? I think he's a modalist. If I understand, is that correct? You might know that. I think that's right. Okay, and so there will be others because it, again, it has this appeal of logic. I mean, even though it just doesn't stand up to scripture. Uh, oh, Jay, Jay, well, David. Some of. Oh, yeah, the one that's Pentecostal. That's right, that helped. Uh-huh. Yeah, Jay. So as you go on in history, reading later church fathers, they're even more removed from the Scripture. Yeah. The excellent point. Okay, great. I want to make one point related to Ted's question about canonicity, too or that were touched on canonicity, the New Testament canon. I'm going to make an argument on canonicity that it's not the way you normally hear it talked about, that people weren't looking to the New Testament as canon. I mean, I, I think that there's some questions, and, and like you said, in some places there, they were overly emphasizing the Old Testament, not seeing the New. But I think the basic disposition of how God had given his word throughout history taught the church to receive the apostolic letters and writings as canonical immediately. As soon as they had it, and they could identify it's from Paul, it's from Matthew, it's from John, and they read it, they accepted it. I'm going to say that, I'm going to explain that later on. But I think that's something I want you to, to remember since it was brought up today. Even though there is some, we have to acknowledge that it was something Satan used to confuse the church, but that the faithful were always thinking about this the right way and were, the canon was growing as they were getting the letters in the New Testament and they weren't waiting till some later date for the church to say that this is what is the canon. Because I'll explain it and I think in a few weeks. So anyway, just keep that in your mind for later. 
Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for the preciousness of your word. We praise you because you are triune. You are altogether lovely and glorious and wonderful. Your personal God who has always existed in a communion of love and mutual uh, cooperation and oneness of mind and oneness of heart. And then you invite us into that oneness, that communion of love through Jesus Christ. Help us to be zealous uh, for loving you more, and that means loving one another more, that we would have a oneness as Jesus prayed, that we would be one even as you, Father, and Jesus are one. May we be one. We pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.